like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Makiyash Power Match Quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. We didn't know or think we'd meet our goal. We ended up breaking Kickstarter's record for their biggest selling music release ever. And I think at the time we, we sold $1.5 million worth of product to 10,000 backers. So it was proof of people's interest in, in the project and also the idea of, of wanting something tangible. And we made this design decision early on to make something really kind of sacred and holy, kind of like appropriate to the magnitude of the idea of it. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Grammy award-winning graphic designer, Lawrence Azarad. Wait, what? Grammy? Yep. He designed a box set for the Voyager Golden Record, a super cool project which we will hear all about. In fact, Lawrence has done a lot of work in the music business. You're probably familiar with Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot album cover featuring Chicago's famous corncob towers. Yep, that's his work. 
That's because he was an art director at Warner Brothers Records in the early part of his career. Now he runs his own shop, LAD Design, and he has worked with some super interesting clients like Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Beach Boys, John Legend, and so, so, so many more. Wow. Let's talk to Lawrence. I'm Lawrence Azarad. My home and where I live and work is Los Angeles. And I'm a graphic designer, creative director, because I love making things that have a creative impact on people's lives. Mm. Yes, that's a good reason. All right. So let's break it down to the very beginning. Mm. We want to know all about, you know, your childhood. You were born in L.A., right? I was born in L.A., one of the few native unicorn species. I feel oh, yeah. like it's one of those cities where everybody else is from somewhere else. And if, if I tell people that I'm actually from L.A., people look at me like I have like a horn coming out of my head or something <laughs> like that. But it was, yeah, L.A. and L.A., L.A., L.A. proper. Like I grew up like right before the Beverly, right near the Beverly Center. I I remember going to the Beverly Center before it was the Beverly Center. It was a little amusement park called Beverly Park and there were pony rides and lakes oh, and roller coasters. Right. Yes. Yeah. Were you are you from LA? No, I'm not. I'm from Michigan, but I've heard about this little amusement park because I just did a big project at the Beverly Center. It, I love hearing about old LA history. Yeah. I cried. I went on the last day <laughs> and my horse's name was Pickles. I was very sad that <laughs> they closed down Beverly Park to build the Beverly Center, of all things, which, you know, by the time that was open, I was like a preteen slash young teen, of course, like at a mall like that, all of your worst teen like experiences socially happened. So it was very I try to avoid La Cienega and, and <laughs> as much as I can. Wait, so all of your adolescence went down at the mall at Beverly Center? <laughs> the whole adolescence, yeah. Actually, my school bus stop was actually in front of the Beverly Center. No, I, LA is, is oddly, and I don't really think about it that much, but it was kind of formative in, you know, developing who I later came to be. It was it, just like, you know, if you grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, like a steel town or Detroit, in Michigan, the automotive industry, LA, it is a factor, factory town where Hollywood is, is the factory. So mm-hmm. my parents were producers or screenwriters, cousins were screenwriters. I, you know, went to this magnet school, Los Angeles Center for Studies. And there were a lot of classmates who went on to become, you know, quite famous and cultural figures. And it's just kind of funny to look around at who is on TMZ today and, and know that you like sat next to them in math class and, you know, did funny things in art class together. So yeah. Or they used to wear high waters or pick their nose. <laughs> used to wear high waters. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy Z pants with the <laughs> strap, you know, we're talking like the advent of skateboard era. Thrash oh, also, you had the taunts for taunts type of thing, but, you know, classmates include everyone from like Monica Lewinsky to David Arquette to Leonardo DiCaprio. It was like a real motley crew of people. We weren't all friends all the time, all together. It wasn't 
it was a sitcom or anything, but uh, <laughs> we were you... all amongst in and around cut chemist. Uh, Whoa. Yeah. 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 Even Gaio Siri, Madonna's manager. So it's. What did your parents do? We were normal. We were normal, which also kind of gave gave me a complex because I wasn't, you know, fabulous. So it's <laughs> it definitely a good way to like give a kid like an inferiority complex. No, my my mom was a dental hygienist, and and my dad worked in aerospace, just like a lot of other Southern California families. So it was it was it was pretty regular. I mean, normal is all relative. So. Sure. But I mean, looking back on it now, don't you feel a little bit grateful that you had maybe a more grounded childhood instead of one that was distorted and inflated by these caricature like dimensions of Hollywood? Absolutely. It it definitely instilled, you know, you, I think everything that's worth doing, it, it you have to work for it. Nothing is handed to you. And the idea of diligence and focus and, and digging deep and, and striving for your goals, it sounds kind of like a poster you might find in Dunder Mifflin. But, you know, it is true that you, you do have to work hard for where you want to go. And so I'm guessing your dental hygienist mom and aerospace dad didn't try and push you. They weren't stage parents. They didn't try and push you into the industry. No, they didn't trot no. you out for auditions and and get you working. No, no, no. I, I, there was kind of like it, it, kind of like everyone's doing it kind of thing, like mm-hmm. go to auditions, but it just wasn't in my you know path. So, but what was in my path really early on was was art, and even you know elementary school, junior high school, high school. It was just kind of what I loved to do what I took to and, and making art. And, and it was, you know, an awesome way to get like a free period, like in advanced art placement classes, but it was something that I really enjoyed and it was fun. And, and just like that Malcolm Gladwell idea where like, if you keep doing something and, and you actually enjoy doing it, it was something that I became good at, but this was more on the drawing and painting way before, you know, any computers, Macs or anything like that. It was, it was just, I loved, I loved making art, going to museums, looking at art and, and what kind of, what kind of stuff did you like? Were you into abstraction? Were you into portraiture? Were you into landscapes? What kind of art and culture were you consuming? It was a lot of, I'd say, like augmented naturalist kind of like, you know, ultimately you could classify it as illustrations, you know, paintings that told stories. Hockney was really huge at the time. There was there was a giant Hockney retrospective just right about as I was kind of coming into this age and capacity. So a painting that that painting of his the drive to the studio, the super long one with the Mulholland Drive, you know, that I think, actually, I'm just realizing it now, but that was, that was really influential, just a lot of really bright colors, but also a winding narrative and, and just really kind of. And very LA. Yeah, very LA. Yeah. There were a lot of freeways and roads and things like that in my paintings. Were you more (laughs) of like an academic creative or were you more of like a rebellious creative? 
Well, it was my way of rebelling because it was something that I could do, kind of be in my own world, but it wasn't, you know, like rebelling, like punk, anarchist, graffiti. Mm -hmm. Growing up, there was no bandwidth to kind of waste time and resources and effort to do bad things like that. It was hard to get into this magnet school. It was a privilege mm -hmm. to be there. You know, my parents worked really hard to kind of set me up on this path. So that wasn't the type of thing that you felt like you wanted to throw away or rebel against or... or Got it. Don't squander the opportunity. Exactly. So then you, you got a BFA in graphic design from CCA in San Francisco. So how did you go from being interested in painting and drawing to making the leap to graphic design? I went to CCA to study illustration because it just seemed like a natural extension of what I was already doing in high school. And I think it was really because I didn't really even know what graphic design was. Actually, Ironically, as a much younger kid, the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles was a big kind of influence on me. Deborah Sussman's graphics just kind of like transformed the city and the colors and the Oh, wow. Uh, the that would be oh. influential. Cool. There was no Pinterest or Tumblr or any blogs like this. So to see your city like literally transformed through design, it was, it was kind of like, wow, I, I think this is really awesome. But I didn't know that it was graphic design. So then later... Fast forward to the very early 90s in San Francisco, it was kind of an era of the cult of the designer, high, high watermark for graphic design becoming the profession that it is today, you know, the era of annual reports and, and kind of like corporate design as, as this apex of quality and design and you had people like Michael Cronin and Michael Vanderbile and Michael Mannering and Lucille Tanazis and, and all these kind of design greats doing this really beautiful and elegant work. And they were doing work that was connecting to commerce and society and to people. And it was, it was a way where it was kind of, hey, wait a minute, you could actually make art and make beautiful things that had a utility and a value beyond seeing it in a gallery. And that was really kind of exciting for me. Did you change your major? I changed my major, yeah. Once I kind of became aware of what graphic design was, I, I switched over. And But reading things like communication arts was a Bible, and there used to be these hardbound design annuals, and you would kind of like comb over them. And just looking at the way they started to infuse photography and typography and telling stories in a way that was beyond just one artwork. And then, of course, you have these other disciplines of design, you know, signage, wayfinding environments. And it just was so much more of an expansive world. I fell in love with it. Of course, that was also still at the era when you we were right on the edge of traditional old school graphic design and the very first computers. So just drawing the ink lines on Duraline and cutting the lines with razor blades. Yeah, I was going to ask you, hand you skills. Yeah. set type by hand and do your own lettering and stuff? I mean, did you, did you build your skills in the old world? The, yeah, they, they, they kind of forced us to do both. Okay. It was weird because straddling the fence, you become kind of a master of, of neither. And the, I remember the teacher who taught the old school production techniques, you know, she was like 
a dinosaur from central casting <laughs> with the triangles and T-squares. And I just remember staying up all night drawing these straight lines on, on film. And she would hold the film up to the light to see that you had consistency of, in the line of, of the density of your ink. So like even in your line, she didn't want to see you having darker and lighter areas inside this one tiny little line and the way you would draw a square the corners have to be perfect and all this type of stuff but that is nothing compared to what you know the generations before me had to do with you know drawing the letter d you know two thousand times you know in basel switzerland until you were perfect it was very like karate kid kind of (laughs) yeah well i mean i think there's a lot of value though because that sets the quality bar pretty high and i don't know when you can issue things out so fast in the digital world sometimes i think the sense of like what good workmanship is gets a little blurry Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rigor and dedication and practice is is still important, and no matter if you, if you're yeah, and no designer, matter the craft, yeah, yeah, ice skater or or whatever. But on the computer side, the skills, the tools weren't really there yet. I mean, I was on like Photoshop version two, and <laughs> I just remember having like a forty-four megabyte. Cyquest drive. The, the cartridge was like $80 and <laughs> like the biggest storage device ever. And now 40 megabytes is like the size of a typical email. So so let's let's talk about your professional life, because, I mean, you moved from from Los Angeles to San Francisco. So so far, we're still in California and we're in the big cities and from what I understand, you became an art director at Warner Brothers Records. Was that your first job out of college? And when did music start to factor into your interest and in your work? It was basically my, my second job out of college, but the first job was at a branding studio for just shy of a year. So okay. pretty quickly, I, I jumped right into the music industry. But the other jobs and, and internships in college kind of taught me the fundamentals of working in an office and working with clients and branding and, and all those kind of fundamentals. And, and there was just this very much in that era, like this kind of cult of a design studio and what a design studio should be and what it should look like. And with pentagram design being kind of like, you know, the ultimate and working at a record label was, was kind of very much not like that at all. So instead of being a designer who happened to work in the music industry, what ended up happening was I became someone who worked in the music industry who was a designer and Mm, mm -hmm. it it was it was kind of like this shocking shocking role reversal because i'd always envisioned that i would be like in a design studio and there's like a certain way that people like look and dress and the environment and all that and and then here i was kind of put in this like completely different environment at Warner Brothers Records. And, you know, very quickly I fell in love with it because you were exposed to so many different types of people and aspects of our culture. The art department was a really wild and ruckus place at that time. And that was in the early 90s, mid 90s. But you're also working with A&R people and radio people and marketing directors and, and a whole 
cast of characters, it was still at a time at the record label where you could still call it, I guess, the end of the glory days of the old school music industry, where people were still there who had worked with Van Halen and Fleetwood Mac and Prince when budgets were, there was no limit to anything. And and (laughs) there was this very kind of eclectic, fun, electric, exciting environment to be in. It was, it was kind of like, wow, you can do this? I, I can't believe this was a job. So right away, very young, I was thrown into working with A-list photographers, with A-list budgets. and getting Wow. To or, you know, people like, you know, Mark Seliger or, you know, utilizing photography from people like Annie Leibovitz and having photo shoots at, you know, Neutra houses in Los mm-hmm. Angeles or reserving Smashbox. And then, of course, you know, working with the bands, which was exciting and a revelation, too. And it formed a lot of my thinking because coming from art school, you're taught that you're the expert and your perspective in design. You know, you're the one who's equipped with how to translate this message kind of quickly. And it was a little bit of a rude awakening, but in, at, at, at the record label, you know, the, the recording artist, it's, it's their art. Yeah. You know, everybody refers to them as the artist. And I, at first I was like, wait, who's this artist that's showing up, you know, but, but you're not going to tell David Byrne or Miles Davis or Perry Farrell, you know, how, they should interpret their art. It, it very quickly becomes much more of a, I will ideally a symbiotic dialogue where you mm-hmm. can kind of craft this message together. And you, you have to be, I think, a little bit more forgiving. Even though you are an expert and these are your skills, it becomes more of a question of, you know, hey, how can I best translate what your music is all about in a way that the artist feels comfortable that this is a good representation of their music. Okay, so separately from your profession, were there any times where you were just like kind of freaking out at who was coming through the offices and who you were working with and and the artists that you were designing for? I mean, it oh, seems yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I one of the first biggest things I had done was the album package for Californication for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and. Anthony Kiedis practically lived in my office. There was like a a couch behind me and my computer. And he and his management would come and kind of camp out in my office. And he would just use my office as an office and, you know, call MTV and producing. We're going to go to this show and that show. And as he's on the phone, he'd be watching what I was doing on the computer. And he could kind of like interrupt the call and just say a a little lower, a little higher and just (laughs) Um, but yeah, there, there was, it was it, every now and then late in the art department, you know, Neil Young would just call the art department with like question about his record on the schedule, just kind of like, oh my God, I'm talking to Neil Young. Or, <laughs> it was still an era where there were, you know, these kind of like classic legends, you know, definitely was a thrill to get to make art for David Byrne. So cool. Yeah. So cool. So so here's what I'm thinking, too, though. Like, you're saying it was the end of the glory days. And, like, the 90s was also the time when all the major record labels were, like, looking for the next Seattle or the next grunge, the mm-hmm. next Nirvana. And then Napster and streaming started happening and the sales of CDs started dis- declining and people started getting dropped from record labels. And 
I mean, did you, were you there? Did you feel the industry anxiety while you were still there or did you leave before? No, that's a great question. I was there when Napster came along and the record industry didn't take it seriously. And uh-huh. I remember when people were kind of circulating articles on, on email, like, is this like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What is this thing? Well, this is not going to be a problem. It was, it was just kind of seemed to be, and to, to the fault of the record companies that, well, people are always going to buy this and people are always going to go to stores and people are always going to, to value this. And, and I don't think anybody could foresee the ease of piracy and, and that there was this kind of tectonic shift in, in value that, you know, a new generation came along and this, this material is free, like listening to the radio. Why shouldn't I listen to it for free? You know, and at every revolution in technology, people had warned that, well, these problems had come before and they'd never really manifested. But this, this time, it caught up with them before it was the realization was made that they had to kind of get on board with this technology. I think the, the relationship to music had changed and that was part of the change in the label that led to me going out on my own. But much later in, in our career here, we have an initiative that is called designing for the future of music. And we we're realizing that now we have a much different relationship with how we discover and value music. So this initiative that we've created is, is really about how can we use design to make the connection to music deeper again, because those album covers and, and that. Oh, were, I know. I miss yeah. the tangibility of that. I mm-hmm. miss pulling open the CD and reading all the liner notes. And even before that, you know, the, the vinyl records and, and I don't know, I used to sit and stare at it while I would listen to the music and it would, it would absolutely sort of pave the path of my imagination. Mm-hmm. As, yeah. And I miss that. And not only that, but, and we can, ugh, we, we don't have time to go all into the digital world, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. now I can't even remember what I have or what I like because I don't have that tangible connection. But but moving on, I want to know, so you're kind of well-known also for a very popular Wilco album cover. Yes. I know you did a lot of work with Wilco. Mm-hmm. And mm. this album cover for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot famously features the Chicago Corn Cob mm-hmm. Towers. Did that project, so were you on that project at Warner Brothers, or did, did uh. that happen? I know Wilco was dropped from Warner Brothers yeah. and then re-signed with a subsidiary and that was all happening and Gary Hustwit was documenting it in uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Where were you at in that whole process? I was in that maelstrom of a scene and, and <laughs> okay. coincidentally it was right when I left the label so it was a very kind of tumultuous time for me personally it just it seemed like it was this storm of change I got on board with the Wilco camp right at the end of being there and, and they were still like a very small band and then I worked on Summer Teeth and then as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was coming together you have the Gary Huswick film directed by Sam Jones and there was this 
excitement that, that something big was happening. And they were kind of harbingers for the, the changes in the music industry. And I think bands taking a different type of ownership and agency for their own music and standing up for doing what they wanted to do the way they wanted to do it. The fight that broke out and that's reflected in the movie was was very kind of reflective of a lot of things happening in the culture relationships between artists and labels but also the record was really brilliant but i was i was there during all of that there during a lot of the filming of the record it was out in chicago at their studio during a lot of the photographing for that session and we really had no idea where we were going with the cover of that record there was this idea to include lots of different buildings of chicago and and have these kind of like almost to bring it back to david hockney but like hockney-esque collages and i've worked with jeff tweedy a long time and and the way it usually works with with jeff is is there's a large and long kind of exploration of a lot of different options hundreds of options but usually what we do with wilco is is very concise and simple and and there's a strength in that and i think that's why that cover kind of resonates with a lot of people but having explored so many other things we know that when we've arrived finally at that point it's it's the right decision and so yeah i had moved and left the label and starting to set up shop so we, we created that cover like in an old apartment i had like 18 <laughs> years ago wow i mean there was all different kinds of thoughts and, and just the idea to clip it out and keep it simple and and also a lot of people don't know that there were four different covers. There's an addition of, there was a, a green one, a white one, a blue one, and then the most mm -hmm. famous ones, the khaki one. So none mm -hmm. such ran all four of them. And the fact that we had the O card was a big deal. But it was also like right, not that long after 9-11 and the idea of two towers. And, yeah. just, and then there's this theory that the song Ashes of American Flag on that record kind of refers to 9-11, but it, it doesn't. The music was written before 9-11. I think, though, like a lot of great records that are known for their covers, that's an amazing record musically. And you can't separate one from the other. And it's really fulfilling as a designer, because like I said at the very beginning, my ultimate goal is to make work that means something for people. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the hashtag, hashtag Wilco Towers, and see all the photos of the Bertrand Goldberg building, that's that's fulfilling to me that that people appreciate that art. It means something to them. It reminds them of this music. And yeah, it does forge that connection you were talking about. And what a great way, like what a very strong foundation to start your own shop on, on the heels of such a strong record cover. I mean, did that get you off and running in terms of your own studio? It was. Yeah, I had kind of left Warner with like some bands a few bands that i was working with katie lang was one of them it was it was it was very frightening to kind of go off on my own and you 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 just don't know if you're gonna make it i remember having to like use my own credit card to pay for this illustration of katie lang that was done by al hirschfield who's no longer with us anymore and just you know charging nine thousand dollars on my credit card to pay for just a lot of scary leaps and you just expect the ground to kind of catch you beneath that but and it did it did <laughs> the, <laughs> the, 
Wilco, Yankee Hotel wasn't, it wasn't like an instant classic. I mean, it was, it was praised by the critics when it came out, but I think that record and the importance of it is it something that... It was a slow that, build, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to kind of, I mean, I was happy to say like, hey, I work with Wilco, but... But you weren't this instant hotshot. No, like, no, no, no. Yeah. Not by a long shot. Now <laughs> people say like, oh, you did Yankee Hotel and... It's it's almost like deceptively simple the cover, but it's, it's <laughs> nice that um, that it, it 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 means so much to me. Until you get to a certain generation, then you have kids asking about some type of hotel fox thing, like what? You know? <laughs> then you're just like, okay, well, you're under thirty five, so. <laughs> I wonder what's going to become like the album cover of the next generation of kids. Well, that's, that's part of what we're aiming to uncover in this designing the future of music. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to be, we are hosting and sponsoring academic programs and workshops and clinics to explore that very question. And, and, and perhaps, and like you allude to, perhaps it's not an album cover at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And if looking back in art history, album art history, it was never just the cover itself either, you know, like the clothes that Vivian Westwood put out on the street or how, you know, fans of Quadrophenia dressed or, you know, Public Enemy. It it was about, you know, this kind of comprehensive, holistic mosaic of pieces. Mm -hmm. and, And we need to kind of uncover new touch points of design and technology that that are meaningful again. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. So the next step in your career that I'd like to talk about that's a big milestone is that you won a Grammy. A I mean, Grammy! <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It Can you just talk about that for a minute? Because let me just tell our listeners first. So you won a Grammy this year, 2018, for Best Boxed or Special Limited Edition Package for the Voyager Golden Record. 
So could you talk about what that Voyager Golden Record is and then how that project came to be? You know, this definitely by far one of the most fulfilling projects I've been lucky to be a part of. It's a really weird project. Some people know about it, remember it from their childhood. Some people, some people don't. When the, when you learn about it, it's kind of a mind blowing thing. But in 1977, the scientists at NASA figured out that the way the planets were lining up in our solar system, that if they sent out two probes at a certain trajectory, certain speed, they would pass perfectly by all the planets in our solar system. We'd never been, had close-up looks at Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, any planetary neighbors. And so that was that was really the mission to go and, and photograph our solar system. So Carl Sagan led a team of scientists and artists and cultural thinkers out of Cornell University that they, they thought that if extraterrestrials exist, and if they ever happen to come in contact with the spacecraft, wouldn't it be great to put a message from humanity on the spacecraft? And so attached to the records that were launched in 77 are, are there's one on each spacecraft. It's, it's, a, it's a record. It's a gold-plated record in a gold case. And it's on there. And it will be on there forever. Voyager 1 left our solar system just a couple of years ago. It's currently 11.7 billion miles away. And it's traveling 11 miles a second. And the record itself is a compilation of all the sounds of humanity, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a wild, wild portrait of who we are. There's music from all different cultures. They had the ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax kind of basically create the first world music tape. So you have things on there from like the Solomon Islands, but there's also Bach and Beethoven all the way up to Chuck Berry. That's the most contemporary music on there. But they really worked hard to get kind of a spectrum of cultural music in there. Then there's greetings from 55 human languages. And then freakishly enough, encoded in the grooves of the record in very, very, very early digital image coding are images that tell the story of humanity, all the way from like our earliest mathematical systems to our biology, to our habitats, our family structure, how we eat, drink, trees, consonants, our technology, our, our physiology. So it's this really kind of exotic kind of portrait of humanity. The neat thing about it, well, there's a lot of neat things about that, but there's no <laughs> images of, of war or disease or, or poverty on the record that it's this like idealistic self-portrait. So okay. it's, it's, it, we like to think that it's something for us here on earth to aspire to. Okay. So that went, that got shot out to space in 77 mm -hmm. and and I'm sure there was, you know, a lot of media describing the record and all of that. But but your project came together recently as a reissue. They, they yeah. made that record available to the public, right? Yes, yes. And it had never really been made public professionally, comprehensively at the highest level of quality. Bits and pieces of it existed online. Images from the, the images on the disc were in poor quality on the internet. And people, even Carl Sagan had tried to release the record over the years and, and nobody ever kind of 
like why you know who's who's there's also also on the record is all these audio this audio poem sounds of earth so there's like rain and whales and wolves and heartbeats and a baby crying it, it just seemed too esoteric so two other partners in the project they, they came to me and they had this idea a lot of people i think had this idea wouldn't it be fun what if we could release this but challenges and clearance and permission and acquiring the master tapes and acquiring the original images it just seemed like too herculean of a task mm-hmm. my friend and colleague david peskovitz said had had you ever heard of the voyager and i i had like a fleeting knowledge of it would you want to work on the reissue i'm like yeah of course so it seemed like the perfect thing to take to kickstarter so we released it on kickstarter we didn't know or think we'd meet our goal we ended up breaking kickstarter's record for their biggest selling music release ever and i think at the time we we sold 1.5 million dollars worth of product to 10,000 backers so it was proof of people's interest in in the project and also the idea of of wanting something tangible and we made this design decision early on to make something really kind of sacred and holy, kind of like appropriate to the magnitude of the idea of it. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing was done in the 70s and and the technology was very kind of retro and we, we could have definitely done something in that kind of look and feel, but we wanted something to that reflected this like, good God, this is like this holy museum kind of like, almost like the monolith in 2001. You know, it's it's black with this gold foil and we went to extreme lengths to digitize everything properly and and at least on the the visual side my design colleague Frankie Hammersma and I went to you know we had to recreate original drawings in vector for the first time the the images that we found in a metal box from one of the original committee members that had never been exposed before our set of images is even better than the the ones in the archive at jpl and then our partners on the other side of the project did equally insane things on on the music side of things like uncovering the original master tapes from a vault in in sony in new york you know a lot of things like we didn't know if they would shake out or line up or we would get the permission or blessing from the original committee members and it was really sweet when it did come out. Carl Sagan's widow, Andrian, she really felt like we, we did honor the legacy of the project. And, and a lot of people have kind of tried to piggyback on, on the Voyager. There's a lot of Voyager stuff out there, earrings and mugs and shirts and bags and things like that. But we wanted to really have this thing be like the, the gold standard, if you excuse yeah. the pun. is it still available like can regular people buy it they can buy it there's a a second edition which is at available at ozmarecords.com o-z-m-a-r-e-c-o-r-d-s the press that we got was was phenomenal you know like everything from the new york times and washington post and the guardian atlantic and but all of it really goes i think to say that especially in the time and era that we live in today that we need messages of hope and aspiration 
And there's this very famous speech by Carl Sagan called The Pale Blue Dot. And if you're not familiar with it, I definitely recommend bringing it up on YouTube. It's just three minutes long and, and something's wrong with you if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes. But it's... <laughs> You know, we, we, we live on this tiny speck in like this vast universe and this speck has been, you know, floating for billions of years and, and it will continue to. So the idea of, you know, treating each other kindly, honoring the world that we live in, in the time that we live on it, these are all kind of issues that you're reminded of when you when you kind of understand the vastness of the cosmos so yeah this this project was kind of and that's i think why the press covered it so so broadly that it that it really strikes mm. to it like a a core human interest that yes well what a what a meaningful project to begin with in 1977 and then what an honor and accomplishment for you to be able to sort of pull it together and package it so timelessly for the future and for now and the future. Yeah. Yeah. And congratulations on winning the Grammy. <laughs> That's fun. It's super fun. It's, it's, <laughs> it's nice. Look, I know a lot of people say this, but when you see the posts on Instagram, especially on the original Kickstarter things where like kids and people unwrapping it at Christmas and like it, people posting it's here, it's here, it's here. And, you could see their joy, you know, that is really, it's equal to the Grammy. I'll, I'll certainly say that, you know. Well, yes, for sure. And you started this whole thing off by talking about you love making design that impacts people. And so when you see those posts, then you're getting like that kind of feedback. I'm sure it juices your heart in the best possible way. And a Grammy's a different kind of an accolade, but they're both pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually presented our category and I had dedicated our Grammy to Chuck Berry because he passed away last year, the year that, you know, we finished this and he's on the Voyager record. And, and I, from the stage and my acceptance speech while I was dedicating it, I said that he's on there forever floating 13.5 billion miles in space. And I, I could tell something was happening behind me because like the audience is starting to laugh. And I basically Neil deGrasse Tyson was like correcting me on being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I turned around and my partners kind of gave like, it's like a plus or minus is what Neil deGrasse said. <laughs> well, I said 13.5, it's 11.7 billion miles away. So I, I was off by, by several billion miles but you know you it's the only and of course it was kind of sweet that neil was like the only guy who could really like right the only expert who could correct from that was astrophysics it's the only human-made thing that's ever left our solar system mm -hmm. so wow it's it's out there all right so let's i know you have a, an upcoming project that's also very exciting yes it's a book it's a book called supersonic the design and lifestyle of concord and i know that concord is the what do you what do you call it it's a jet that was able to break the sound barrier yes yes well in a sentence it's the world's only luxury supersonic aircraft i mean a lot of people just remember the jj fad song supersonic but <laughs> it, you know it's it's flying twice the speed of sound yeah 
And I've heard stories of people who've been inside and they heard the sonic boom. And I need to know, did you ride it? Did you fly this, the Concorde? I did, I, yeah. You, you did? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. it's always been a yeah. goal of mine, but they decommissioned it yeah. before I was able to achieve that goal. Yeah. I even have pictures I drew of me on the Concorde. Really? Well, you <laughs> yes. know, I, I went on my 30th birthday. I, they had already announced the end, so it was kind of like a now or never type of thing. I went in July, they ended it in October. And, you know, again, this was pre-iPhone, pre-Instagram for sure, but I took a selfie. Ridiculously, I went alone. It was the shortest birthday of my life because I went counter-rotation to the earth. But I took a selfie <laughs> in my seat. You're also a little buzzed because they just ply you with, like, champagne and, and fine wine, everything. Oh, yeah. I want to do uh, it. <laughs> that, that's my author photo in the book, a 30-year-old version of myself. <laughs> It's a wild experience. The plane was a remarkable feat of design and engineering, and, and the aircraft itself was almost like this beautiful sculpture, like a swan. That was all kind of informed by the physics of, of something being able to fly 1,400 miles an hour. But everything that the passenger came into contact with, everything from the seats to your luggage tags to the forks and knives to your menus, was designed by the world's best designers and the airlines that operated it decided that they wanted to kind of create this premium travel experience so it became this kind of rarefied world of design where fabulous people would fly on this fabulous plane and have this kind of amazing experience and and just really quickly what supersonic meant was that you're actually flying faster than the rotation of the earth itself and you're you're flying double the speed of any normal airplane so you it's being since it flew faster than the earth moves you could go to your destination in real local time and be there before the time you left your departure spot so you could kind of go back in time and it also flew at twice the altitude so you're at the edge of the stratosphere so at that point, you can see the curvature of the earth. So I'm sorry to the flat earthers out there, but <laughs> wow. I have seen it. And the Yeah, but you were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the sky is black at, at the edge there. So Wow! So you can see both the black and the blue? <sighs> you see the black so and the blue cool. and you definitely get this much more kind of like global, like you see weather patterns and stuff. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have like, I'm sweating and I have goosebumps at the same time. It, it's it's <laughs> so wild. excited. Yeah. And I mean, this wasn't the case on my flight, but if you saw a regular airplane 30,000 feet below you traveling in the same direction, that airplane would be appear to be flying backwards because you were going twice the speed of that. Oh, they would right. do these crazy things where they would like have a regular plane take off on one side of the Atlantic and then Concord on the other and Concord like lap the plane, like go what? to Paris and then back to New York before the, the other plane got to New York. So oh. yeah, it was, it was basically like being in a fighter jet with a hundred other people drinking fine champagne and, and you know, your, your passengers are, Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol and, and Phil Collins and 
Joan Collins. But uh, it wasn't intended to be this like super fabulous thing for the one percent. It was this the next step in mm-hmm. passenger travel, and it's another project that I'm interested in because of this human ideal. And it was at the the dawn of the jet age and also at the same time as the Apollo era. And there were going to be many, many, many Concords and all the airlines were going to fly them. You know, United Airlines and American Airlines, they all had orders for Concord. So you could go from New York to Los Angeles in, in, you know, two hours and change. You could go to New York and back in the same day. But America was building their own Concorde. It was going to be bigger and faster, much faster, actually. The Soviets built one. And because of the geopolitics of the whole race, they made it very difficult for Concorde to kind of operate in real terms. So all the airlines Mm -hmm. dropped their orders and it went from, you know, the idea of, you know, this was the next generation of airplane to there just being 16 of them. So then the airlines were stuck with these like super expensive now ultra custom, like high performance speed cars. And that's when they made the decision like, well, I guess since we have these things, we'll just make it this kind of ultimate experience. And that's when they brought on board like Raymond Lowy and Andre Putnam and Terrence Conrad and all these great designers to design the interiors and the elements. And that's what the book is really about. I get it. Wow. So that is a very fascinating project. And I'm looking forward to that. But we need to talk about your creative process. Yes. So at this stage in your career, how would you describe your creative process? And is a fair amount of it like just choosing which projects you want to work on? Or is a lot of it about the capturing and recording of your ideas and your inspiration? Or can you give us a sense of what it's like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. To me, the answer is really about developing a rigor and a dedication and a focus. You have to work hard at these things and dedicate yourself to your craft. And and there was a time where, you know, when I was much younger and, and more naive and, and a little less realistic, thinking that things were just going to happen. And there was kind of a, a challenging point where there's a realization that, you know, things don't just get handed to you and, and you have to really make things happen yourself. So that, that kind of manifested in me starting at least in a very small step with spending 10 minutes a day with a journal and just saying like, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And, and how am I going to do it? And why is being a designer important to me? What are the kind of core fundamentals that I believe in as far as being a designer and really showing up every day and doing it every day and blocking out time for working on creative endeavors and not being the dog that chases its tail. I know that creative processes are very different for all different kinds of individuals. Some people are a lot more free and and it happens when it happens or let the muse come when it does. But to me, it's, it's really about plugging into dedication on a consistent basis. And in the case of the Concord project, I've been obsessed with the Concord story for as long as I can remember. And I would wanted to work on this book for about 15 years. And I'd been working on it off and on, not working, working. And a lot of publishers passed on the book, but just kept plugging at it and doing it and, and sending up proposals. And it, and it wasn't until someone that I had sent a proposal to probably 12 years later, 
came back and said, hey, you sent this proposal to me. Let's make this happen. I kind of liken it to, you know, that, that kid who wants to be a basketball player is out there at 11 o'clock at night and, sh- and shooting hoops. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the ice skater that's out there at, at six in the morning. It's, it's just, you, you just. This is the second time you've brought up ice skating. I know. I know. Well, <laughs> I can't ice skate. Is there so. something else we need to know no, about? No. Do you feel like that 10 minutes a day with your journal, that sort of exercise, that ritual primes you, your brain and your attitude for the day? It's a start. And it, it does, okay. it's, it, it primes the, the morning. Usually by the time like we're halfway through the morning, there's like the reality of other stresses. One of the things I try to remember in that, that 10 minutes is to come back to presence and, and you know, stay focused on, on being present minded. But, you know, we all get stresses and, and emergencies and fire drills and emails and, and all of those things. But at least there's that moment where you can reset and regroup and, and kind of come back to the core fundamentals. Have you developed any other kind of creative habits or positive habits or strategies to kind of get yourself into that creative mood? There are a lot of people we've talked to in the past that have very specific rituals and then some people just work until it comes to them. Do you have any like thing that you do on a regular basis? Well, I, I, you know, do try to practice mindfulness and, and that comes with some meditation that, that usually is grouped with the journal keeping when it comes down to actually seriously truly diving into real creative that requires being diligent about thinking and research and drilling into the core fundamental ideas. But there is no, I don't, you know, have a a certain shirt or a talisman (laughs) or, or, or a dance or a chance or anything like that. But, but it is, I think it is about bringing a seriousness to, to that aspect of the design and, and also Ever since working in the music industry, music is has been kind of a fundamental aspect of setting the creative mood. So whatever I'm working on, I try to listen to a similar type of music. Mm. So you've worked on projects that touch on breaking the sound barrier, transcending Earth, humanity, atmosphere, even the solar system. But are there any barriers or boundaries that you are personally interested in breaking or transcending? To me, our next biggest challenge that we're working on here is this idea, this designing the future of music and this boundary of how we can connect to music through design in a deeper way and in a in a streaming world. And it's, it's a solution that we haven't fully uncovered yet. There, there are a lot of people doing a lot of really wonderful and innovative things in this space, but there's a lot more work to be done to have kind of a breakthrough moment at large for everyone to kind of appreciate the intersection of design and music again. So pushing that boundary, setting a stage for more creativity there through these workshops that we're developing and, and the schools that we're working with, that to us is, is a really, as a boundary we want, we want to conquer. Is this an ongoing project and is it currently available for people to take these workshops or is this something you're still kind of in the process of creating? We're building 
collaborative relationships with a couple different colleges and universities, and we've been met with some some really exciting and favorable responses. And ultimately, we'd love to see this happen in workshops that are available to high school students and possibly younger across a whole spectrum of cultural and economic backgrounds. But that that's a little bit further down the road. And this idea of the connection between design and music in a technology world has been kind of our next big concept that that is has been brewing. We're working on a museum exhibit on the topic and a couple other outlets. All of them though, Voyager, Concord, and, and the music project is is really about how can we use creativity to make our human experience better. Well speaking of that, you personally, your human experience What's your next step on the path to self-actualization? You talked about becoming more mindful. Where's your growth? It's important to for me to continue evolving towards quality and setting benchmarks for growth and looking at, you know, who can advise me on that? Where can I find those benchmarks in myself? We've had a really nice run so far, how can we find a new North Star and actually take the steps to get to it? And what are those steps? And all of those sound like kind of dreamy, hopeful prospects, but there's actually a... Yeah, I want some concrete. Oh, Lawrence, how yeah. is Lawrence making Lawrence better? How is Lawrence enhancing Lawrence's life? Yeah. Are you, you- <laughs> it comes to, I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, creative consultants who I've talked to as far as like making my practice more professional stepping. Yeah. But not even your practice. Oh, internally. Yeah. 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 Are you spiritual? Are you like, do you have plans to climb a mountain? Do you have a family? Like, yeah, well, I, my wife and I both work very hard and we definitely need to spend more time enjoying the, the, the life that we have, you know, we, 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 there is this realization that, you know, we, we, when you have your own studio, it's hard to get away. Mm-hmm. So there, there is, I couldn't even pull you away from it in this talk. Yeah. <laughs> right. You mean there's something else outside of life? We don't have, kids. we have a lovely dog. We adore spending time together and it's important to make sure that we do spend more time together because it's easy to turn around and, and I just had my 45th birthday and it's kind of like, well, how did, how did that happen? But there's no, there's no quest to India on the books. There's okay. no mountains <laughs> Yet. we're climbing. I mean, I love California. So any time we can spend in the central coast, Big Sur, the ocean, mm-hmm. the mountains, the trees, time together. It's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to know it's not just all work. No. That makes me happy. No, no. we do have a life outside of that. Uh, There is a winery client of ours in Carmel, and that makes it fun to go there, but that's as far as the work creeps into the book. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So if we were to like fast forward 20 or 30 years, you know, as a creative, most people are creative until they die. So, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a time when you're kind of going to retire, but... I mean, creatively, like, where do you see what you're doing in 20 or 30 years? Mm, mm. Well, I see uh, continuing to grow on a path of evolution towards quality. I mean, what that means is is, is continuing to do work of, of meaning and, and that's valuable design-wise mm-hmm. and that 
also that there is a happiness in the work that you're doing, that you're working for clients that are fulfilling, that don't make you feel like junk, that your contribution is valued. And on our Concord book, Sir Terence Conran wrote our foreword, and he is a design legend, a British design legend. He's 86 years old now and still smokes cigars. And <laughs> he was one of the designers of the interiors of Concord. And he just wrote the most eloquent foreword for us that is really kind of poetic. But to be in a place like that, where you're still creating work that's meaningful and you're enjoying it. Because again, to use a bumper sticker euphemism, it's not about the finish line, but it's about the journey. And you have to enjoy the work you're doing while you're doing it. And I want to be able to look back when I'm 86 and, and not just look back, but look around me at, at the present and, and be happy and proud of, of the work that I've done and contributed to society. Where can our listeners find you on the web and social media and keep an eye out for this book, Supersonic? We have a website for the book, supersonicbook.com. It's also on Amazon and there's an order button on the website. You can get it from Penguin and Random House. It comes out September 18th and will be at booksellers worldwide. I'm on Instagram at LAD underscore design, LAD design. And of course, our website is LADdesign.net. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so jealous. A, all of the shoulders you've brushed with the <laughs> musical greats and that you kind of fly on that concord. Well, if you get the book, it's a glimpse into what it was like. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. Bye. What? He's won a Grammy and flown on the concord. I don't. Well, I know the Grammy's not as big as, like, touching people's hearts and stuff, but it's still cool. <laughs> yeah, but how many designers do you know who won a Grammy? Uh, not that many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's... Uh, it's the subject matter of what he works on is so super cool. I mean, breaking the sound barrier, the Voyager, which is fascinating to me. You know, music, obviously. Some of leg legendary musicians just uh, super cool what a lucky guy I, well i know and is it luck or did he did well he, super know? talented too obviously yeah but i mean also it's I, I think it's choices he made i mean that voyager project came together through kickstarter which means there wasn't like some big client who yeah. came to him with a bunch of money and said why don't you design this there was a lot of initiative and and momentum that had to be put into it on the front end and I love how thoughtful he is about, I mean, it was clearly a choice and a decision not to go retro, not to, not to make the current packaging represent the 1977 project, but to pay homage to the whole thing and think about it in a grander context of all time and eternity and, and space. And what if terrestrials find this, obviously they're not going to find his box set. Maybe they will. If they come to earth. Who knows? <laughs> what if they did? What if? a spaceship landed on Earth and they could compare the original Voyager 1 record with Lawrence's box set. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know. It depends on... Like for, it depends on if aliens know anything about design. Well, I'm just thinking like... <laughs> 
what if aliens are collectors too? And they're like, oh my God, I have these two really limited edition pieces. <laughs> I need to know more about these drawings you have of you on the Concord. Oh my God. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> when I decided that it was a personal goal of mine to ride the Concord, it was before it was decommissioned, I, you know, looked up some images with all the patrons flying the Concorde and it was a sea of middle-aged white men because that's who could afford to fly the Concorde I didn't see Mick Jagger I saw a bunch of businessmen and so I printed out that photo and then I took one of the businessmen and I, I gave him like long brown hair and red lips <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote below it this is me on the Concorde and I pinned it up on my board it was like a vision are you a are you like a firm believer in if you like wi will it to the universe, like physically write it down or something that it's bound to come true? I want to believe that so bad, but I did that with the Concord and they decommissioned it. I mean, maybe it could yeah, happen again in the future. Well, they're doing those space missions now. So maybe it, the Concord was just like peanuts compared to being in a spaceship. I already got space pants. There you go. You know why? <laughs> Ready. Do you know that that line? <laughs> Are, no. those, are those space pants you're wearing? Because oh, your yeah. ass is out of this world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I don't know. I would like to thank, I do think that if you put something out there, it's more likely to come back to you in, in response to your first question. But mm. firm believer, I'm still testing it. Yeah. How about you? Do you believe in that? Um, I, I'm a firm believer in you. You kind of make your own destiny with your own choices. But... I mean, I'm not one to just try anything. I'm not I'm not superstitious, but like I won't naysay anything if I think like, oh, maybe it'll work. Yeah. And I, I think both of those are true in that the first step of making a choice or a decision for yourself and then enacting it is somehow admitting it to yourself and yeah, and a lot of times it, yeah. it's just writing it down and seeing it on paper is somehow more effective in your brain, like taking yeah. notes in class. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm going to go listen to Wilco now. I'm just yeah. really in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys, we want to give a special thank you to all of you guys for listening. We've gotten some really nice reviews online and some nice feedback in emails and on social and we want to encourage you to keep it up because it keeps us going and we love it. And please subscribe, rate and review and do all that business. It really, really helps us. And be sure to go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Lawrence's work. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast, so please connect with us there too. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media and edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com.